Chapter Two of the Dashay Diamonds. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Dashay Diamonds by Richard Marsh. Chapter Two, overheard in the train. It was with a feeling of grim amusement that Mister Paxton bought himself a first-class ticket. It was probably the last occasion on which he would ride first class for some considerable time to come. The die had fallen, the game was lost, Eries had dropped more than one. Not only had he lost all he had to lose, he was a defaulter. It was out of his power to settle, he was going to emigrate instead. He had with him a Gladstone bag. It contained all his worldly possessions that he proposed to take with him on his travels. His intention was, having told Miss Strong the news, and having bidden a last farewell, to go straight from Brighton to Southampton, and thence by the American line, to the continent on whose shores Europe dumps so many of its failures. The train was later than are the trains which are popular with city men. It seemed almost empty at London Bridge. Mr. Paxton had a compartment to himself. He had an evening paper with him. He turned to the money article. Eries had closed a point lower even than he had supposed. It did not matter. A point lower, more or less, would make no difference to him. The difference would be to the brokers who had trusted him. Wishing to do anything but think, he looked to see what other news the paper might contain. Some sensational headlines caught his eye. Robbery of the Duchess of Dachet's diamonds. An extraordinary tale. The announcement amused him. After all, that is the sort of line which I ought to have made my own. Robbing, pure and simple. It's more profitable than what Daisy says I call punting. He read on. The tale was told in the usual sensational style, though the telling could scarcely have been more sensational than the tale which was told. That afternoon, it appeared, an amazing robbery had taken place. Amazing, first, because of the almost incredible value of what had been stolen, and second, because of the daring fashion in which the deed had been done. In spite of the desperate nature of his own position, or perhaps because of it, Mr. Paxton drank in the story with avidity. The Duchess of Dachet, the young, and if report was true, the beautiful wife of one of England's greatest and richest noblemen, had been on a visit to the Queen at Windsor, the honoured guest of the Sovereign. As a fitting mark of the occasion, and in order to appear before Her Majesty in the splendours which so well became her, the Duchess had taken with her the famous Dachet diamonds. As all the world knows, the Dukes of Dachet have been collectors of diamonds during, at any rate, the last two centuries. The value of their collection is fabulous. The intrinsic value of the stones which the Duchess had taken with her on that memorable journey, according to the paper, was at least two hundred and fifty thousand pounds, a quarter of a million of money. This was the net value. Indeed, it seemed that one might almost say it was the trade value, and was quite apart from any adventitious value which they might possess, from, for instance, the point of view of historical association. Mr. Paxton drew a long breath as he read. Two hundred and fifty thousand pounds, a quarter of a million. I am not at all sure that I should not have liked to have had a finger in such a pie as that. 
It would be better than punting at Erie's. The diamonds, it seemed, arrived all right at Windsor, and the Duchess, too. The visit passed off with due éclat. It was as Her Grace was returning that the deed was done, though how it was done was as yet a profound mystery. Of course, commented Mr. Paxton to himself, all criminal London knew what she had taken with her. The betting is that they never lost sight of those diamonds from first to last. To adequately safeguard them she ought to have taken with her a regiment of soldiers. Although she had not gone so far as a regiment of soldiers, that precaution had been taken, and precautions, moreover, which had been found to be adequate over and over again on previous occasions, was sufficiently plain. The Duchess had travelled in a reserved saloon carriage by the five minutes past four train from Windsor to Paddington. She had been accompanied by two servants, her maid, and a manservant named Stephen Eversley. Eversley was one of a family of servants, the members of which had been in the employment of the Dukes of Dachet for generations. It was he who was in charge of the diamonds. They were in a leather dispatch box. The Duchess placed them in it with her own hand, locked the box, and retained the key in her own possession. Eversley carried the box from the Duchess's apartment in the castle to the carriage which conveyed her to the railway station. He placed it on the seat in front of her. He himself sat outside with the maid. When the carriage reached the station, he carried it to the Duchess's saloon. The Duchess was the sole occupant of the saloon. She travelled with the dispatch-box in front of her all the way to London. The Duke met her at Paddington. Eversley again placed the box on the front seat of the carriage, the Duke and Duchess sitting side by side, having it in full view as the broom passed through the London streets. The diamonds, when not in actual use, were always kept, for safe custody, at Bartlett's Bank. The confidential agent of the bank was awaiting their arrival when the broom reached the ducal mansion in Grosvenor Square. The dispatch-box was taken straight to him, and more for form's sake than anything else was opened by the Duchess in his presence, so that he might see that it really did contain the diamonds before he gave the usual receipt. It was as well for the bank's sake that on that occasion the form was observed. When the box was opened it was empty. There was nothing of any sort to show that the diamonds had ever been in it. They had vanished into air. When he had reached this point, Mr. Paxton put the paper down. He laughed. That's a teaser. The position seems to promise a pleasing problem for one of those masters of the art of detection who have been cutting such antics lately in popular fiction. If I were appointed to ferret out the mystery, I fancy I should begin by wanting to know a few things about Her Grace the Duchess. I wonder what happened to that dispatch-box while she and it were tête-à-tête. -tête. It is to be hoped that she possesses her husband's entire confidence, otherwise it is just possible that she is in for a rare old time of it. The newspaper had little more to tell. There were the usual attempts to fill a column with a paragraph, the stereotyped statements about the clues which the police were supposed to be following up, but all that they amounted to was this— that the duchess asserted that she had placed the diamonds in the dispatch-box at windsor castle and that as a matter of plain fact they were not in it when the box reached grosvenor square mr paxton leaned back in his seat thrust his hands into his trouser pockets and mused 
What lucky beggars those thieves must be! What wouldn't anyone do for a quarter of a million? What wouldn't I? Even supposing that the value of the stones is overstated, and that they are only worth half as much, there is some spending in one hundred and twenty-five thousand pounds. It would set me up for life with a little over. What prospect is there in front of me? Don't I know that there is none? Existence in a country which I have not the faintest desire to go to, a life which I hate, a continual struggling and striving for the barest daily bread, with, in all human probability, failure and a nameless grave at the end. What use is there in living out such a life as that? But if I could only lay my hands on even an appreciable fraction of that quarter of a million, with Daisy at my side, God bless the girl, how ill I have treated her! How different it all would be! Mr. Paxton was possessed by a feeling of restlessness. His thoughts pricked him in his most secret places. For him the train was moving much too slowly. Had it flown on the wings of the wind it could scarcely have kept pace with the whirlwind in his brain. Rising to his feet he began to move backwards and forwards in the space between the seats. Anything was better than complete inaction. The compartment in which he was travelling was not a new one. Indeed, so far was it from being a new one that it belonged to a type which, if not actually obsolete, at any rate nowadays is rarely seen. An oblong sheet of plate glass was let into the partition on either side, within a few inches of the roof. This sheet of plate glass was set in a brass frame, the frame itself being swung on a pivot. Desirous of doing anything which would enable him even temporarily to escape from his thoughts, Mr. Paxton gave way to his idle and, one might almost add, impertinent curiosity. He stood first on one seat and peered through the glass into the adjoining compartment. So far as he was able to see from the post of vantage which he occupied, it was vacant. He swung the glass round on its pivot. He listened. There was not a sound. Satisfied, if that is the knowledge gave him any satisfaction, that there was no one there, he prepared to repeat the process of espial on the other seat. But in this case the result was different. No sooner had he brought his eyes on a level with the sheet of glass than he dropped down off the seat again with the rapidity of a jack-in-the-box. "'By George, I've seen that man before. It would hardly do to be caught playing the part of Peeping Tom.' Conscious of so much, he was also conscious at the same time of an increase of curiosity. Among Mr. Paxton's attributes was that one which is supposed to be the peculiar perquisite of royalty— a memory for faces. If, for any cause, a face had been brought to his notice, he never afterwards forgot it. He had seen through that sheet of glass a countenance which he had seen before, and that quite recently. The chances are that I shan't be noticed if I am careful, and if I am caught I'll make a joke of it. I'll peep again. He peeped again. As he did so, audible words all but escaped his lips. The deuce! It's the beggar who was last night with Daisy on the pier. There could be no doubt about it. In the carriage next to his sat the individual whose companionship with Miss Strong had so annoyed him. Mr. Paxton, peering warily through the further end of the glass, treated Mr. Lawrence to a prolonged critical inspection, 
which was not likely to be prejudiced in that gentleman's favour. Mr. Lawrence sat facing his observer on Mr. Paxton's right in the corner of the carriage. That he was not alone was plain. Mr. Paxton saw that he smiled and that his lips were moving. Unfortunately, from Mr. Paxton's point of view, it was not easy to see who was his associate. Whoever it was sat just in front of him, and therefore out of Mr. Paxton's line of vision. This was the more annoying in that Mr. Lawrence took such evident interest in the conversation he was carrying on. An idea occurred to Mr. Paxton. The fellow doesn't seem to see me. When I turned that other thing upon its pivot it didn't make any sound. I wonder if I were to open this affair half an inch or so, if I could hear what the fellow's saying. Mr. Paxton was not in a mood to be particular. On the contrary, he was in one of those moods which come to all of us in some dark hour of our lives, when we do things which, being done, we never cease regretting. Mr. Paxton knelt on the cushions, and he opened the frame, as he had said, just half an inch, and he put his ear as close to the opening as he conveniently could, without running the risk of being seen, and he listened. At first he heard nothing for his pains. He had not got his ear just right, and the roar of the train drowned all other sounds. Slightly shifting his position, Mr. Paxton suddenly found, however, that he could hear quite well. The speakers, to make themselves audible to each other, had to shout nearly at the top of their voices, and this, secure in their privacy, they did, the result being that Mr. Paxton could hear just as well what was being said as the person who, to all intents and purposes, was seated close beside him. The first voice he heard was Mr. Lawrence's. It should be noted that here and there he lost a word, as probably also did the person who was actually addressed, but the general sense of the conversation he caught quite well. "'I told you I could do it. You only want patience and resolution to take advantage of your opportunities, and a big coup is as easily carried off as a small one.' Mr. Lawrence's voice ceased. The rejoinder came from a voice which struck Mr. Paxton as being a very curious one indeed. The speaker spoke not only with a strong nasal twang, but also occasionally with an odd idiom. The unseen listener told himself that the speaker was probably the newest thing in races, a German-American. "'With the assistance of a friend, eh?' Mr. Lawrence's voice again, in it more than a suggestion of scorn. The assistance of a friend. When it comes to the scratch, it is on himself that a man must rely. What a friend principally does is take the lion's share of the spoil. Well, why not? A man will not be able to be much of a friend to another if, first of all, he is not a friend to himself, eh? Mr. Lawrence appeared to make no answer. Possibly he did not relish the other's reasoning. Presently the same voice came again, as if the speaker intended to be apologetic. "'Understand me, my good friend. I do not say that what you did was not clever. No, it was damn clever. That I do say. And I always have said that there was no one in the profession who can come near you. In your line of business, or out of it, how many are there who can touch for a quarter of a million, I want to know? Now tell me, how did you do it? Is it a secret, eh?' 
If Mr. Lawrence had been piqued, the other's words seemed to have appeased him. Not from you. The thing was as plain as walking. The bigger the thing you have to do, the more simply you do it, the better it will be done. It does not seem as though it were simple when you read it in the papers, eh? What do you think? The papers be damned. Directly you gave me the office that she was going to take them with her to Windsor, I saw how I was going to get them, and who I was going to get them from. Who, eh? Eversley. Stow it. The train is stopping. The train was stopping. It had reached a station. The voices ceased. Mr. Paxton withdrew from his listening place with his brain in a greater whirl than ever. What had the two men been talking about? What did they mean by touching for a quarter of a million, and the reference to Windsor? The name which Mr. Lawrence had just mentioned, Eversley, where, quite recently, had he made its acquaintance? Mr. Paxton's glance fell on the evening paper which he had thrown on the seat. He snatched it up. Something like a key to the riddle came to him in a flash. He opened the paper with feverish hands, turning to the account of the robbery of the Duchess of Dachet's diamonds. It was as he thought. His memory had not played him false. The person who had been in charge of the gems had been a man named Stephen Eversley. Mr. Paxton's hands fell nervously onto his knees. He stared into vacancy. What did it mean? The train was off again. Having heard so much, Mr. Paxton felt that he must hear more. He returned to the place of listening. For some moments, while the train was drawing clear of the station, the voices continued silent. Probably before exchanging further confidences, they were desirous of being certain that their privacy would remain uninterrupted. When they were heard again, it seemed that the conversation was being carried on exactly at the point at which Mr. Paxton had heard it cease. The German-American was speaking. Eversley! That is his grace's confidential servant, eh? That's the man. I studied Mr. Eversley by proxy, and I found out just two things about him. And they were? What were they? One was that he was short-sighted, and the other was that he had a pair of spectacles which the Duke had given him for a birthday present, and which he thought no end of. That wasn't much to find out, eh? you think so? Then that's where you're wrong. It's perhaps just as well for you that you don't have to play first lead. The treasury is more in my line, eh? However, what was the use which you made of that little find of yours? If it hadn't been for that little find of mine, the possibility is that the sparklers wouldn't be where they are just now. A friend of mine had a detective camera, those spectacles were kept in something very gorgeous in cases. My friend snapped that spectacle case with his camera. I had an almost exact duplicate made of the case from the print he got, purposely not quite exact, you know, but devilish near. I found myself at Windsor Station just as Her Grace was about to start for town. There were a good many people in the booking office through which you have to pass to reach the platform. As I expected, the Duchess came in front with the maid, old Eversley bringing up the rear. Just as Eversley came into the booking office, someone touched him on the shoulder, and held out that duplicate spectacle case, saying, "'I beg your pardon, sir, have you lost your glasses?' 
of old eversley's fidelity i say nothing i don't call mere straightness anything but he certainly wasn't up to the kind of job he had in hand not when he was properly handled he had been heard to say that he would sooner lose an arm than those precious spectacles because the duke gave them to him you know perhaps he would anyhow he lost something worth a trifle more than his arm when he felt himself touched on the shoulder and saw what looked like that almighty goggle-box in the stranger's hands he got all of a flurry jabbed his fist into the inside pocket of his coat and to enable him to do so popped the dispatch-box down on the seat beside him as i expected that he would do i happened to be sitting on that seat with a rug very nicely screened too by old eversley himself and by the stranger with the goggle-box i nipped my rug over his box leaving another one own brother to the duchess's exposed old eversley found that the stranger's goggle-box was not his and that his own was safe in his pocket picked up my dispatch-box and marched off with it while i travelled with his by the southwestern line to town and i can only hope that he was as pleased with the exchange as i was the german-american's voice was heard as you say in the simplicity of your method my good friend was its beauty and indeed after all simplicity is the very essence the very soul of all true art eh? End of chapter two